the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight, we are talking about a new way to reduce wrinkles that might surprise you. Also, the importance of men talking to men about menopause and HPV, human papillomavirus. How do you get that? Plus, guess what else is on the rise? Binge drinking. And I'm going to tell you why that's not a surprise. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. Human papillomavirus, or HPV, is a group of related viruses that can infect human skin and mucous membranes. It's one of the most common sexually transmitted infections the world over. There are 200 known types of HPV. They are low-risk ones and high-risk ones, classified between those two, and based on their potential to cause various health issues. Because HPV is so common, it's normal for almost every unvaccinated, sexually active person to contract the virus at some point. It usually causes no harm and was resolves without treatment. Some people may not have symptoms and therefore may not even realize that they have HPV. Nine out of 10 HPV cases resolve without treatment within two years and they're without leaving any health concerns. However, in some cases, certain strains of HPV may lead to genital warts or cancer, and the HPV vaccine can help to protect, to protect against contracting HPV. And we're going to be talking about that tonight with my guest, Teresa Norris. She's the founder and president of HPV Global Action as a sexual health specialist with, H, with expertise in HPV. She delivers awareness and spreads vital sexual health information and education to hundreds of Canadian schools from elementary to university level. She focuses on bringing leaders together as well to communicate and provide solutions regarding worldwide HPV, HPV prevention and cervical cancer screening challenges and works nationally and internationally to improve provincial, federal, global decisions and outcomes, particularly on HPV, HPV prevention and screening policies. And she joins me on the line. Good evening, Teresa. Hey there. It's nice to hear you, actually. It's nice to be here. Thanks. I'm so glad. I'm so glad you're here uh, with me tonight. Um, It's great work. And I uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand uh, some of the vaccinations because oftentimes it happens in school. Um, Some of them were not delivered to the students because of a lot of kids were being homeschooled during the pandemic. So are we a little bit behind on HPV vaccinations? Let's start from the very beginning. Um, I listened to your intro, and I think part of the problem we're having about my topic is we talk about this in a way that we make people think that it has nothing to do with them. So let's set the record straight and make sure everybody who's listening to you understands that if you're having any type of skin-to-skin contact with another human being below the waistline, then the human papillomavirus affects you. And this virus causes cancer. So this is not rare. This is not something that doesn't affect very many people. In fact, it's the complete opposite. In a room of five people, four of them are going to be affected by this virus. So that kind of really sets the situation up for a different kind of conversation, which is making it that this vaccination that we're giving to our children is so critical that we start to follow because we are going to get into contact with another human being at one point in our lives. And unfortunately, there's a virus that exists that creates a situation where you can end up having a cancer. And it'll be because you've had skin-to-skin contact with another human being below the waistline. 
And that'll mean that you've used your hands or your mouth or touched someone or just rubbed up against someone. You don't even have to have sex with them. So when you're sitting around five people and you know that four of them are going to be affected by this, it really changes the conversation. So a lot of parents um, are promoting that their children be protected from this virus. So unfortunately, because of COVID, um, this vaccination that's given in schools, and we're giving it across Canada, well, across the world, in kids ranging from grade four to grade eight, well, that whole program got sidelined. So really what's critical, and you mentioned it in your intro, is really about getting our kids vaccinated from cancers that we can't prevent. So HPV is a virus. It causes nine different cancers that are not avoidable unless you're vaccinated. So this is a really important tool that a lot of people need to be starting to be using a lot more in Canada. So I think uh, the biggest thing I can do is plug our website, hpvglobalaction.org is a website that you can go to, look at where you live in the country. You click on your province and you get to see how you have access to this free vaccination that actually protects you from coming into contact with any of these nine cancers or genital warts. So we're really hoping that more and more caregivers and parents allow their children to get vaccinated at school. They have to sign a consent form, but it'll ensure that their child will not uh, get this virus that causes, um, it causes tonsil cancer, vocal cord cancer, tongue cancer, throat cancer, anal cancer, cervical cancer, vulvar cancer, vaginal cancer, and penile cancer. So it's a really important free vaccine that we can be giving our kids at school. And all we have to do is sign that consent form, and that will be probably hitting parents around the end of September or the beginning of October. So we're really hoping that parents start to realize their power to protect their children, particularly. Uh, mind you, it's not just for children, but it is the most easiest way to get access to this vaccine across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, just stepping it back just a little bit, um, we're giving it to children. Is, is it a myth that children will be sexually active sooner if they get HPV vaccine and the education that surrounds it? It's funny you bring that up because that's so, it's like talking about dinosaurs. It's a really long time ago that we learned that by preventing something from happening, it doesn't create the situation from happening. So it's a, it's definitely, this is a cancer prevention tool, the HPV vaccination. It has nothing to do with sex. I don't know too many parents that are talking to their grade five children about sex. So I feel like we should be staying current in our mindset. And our current problem is, is that people don't know that we have a cancer prevention tool. And mm-hmm. this is a definitely a different mindset than when we launched the vaccine 20 years ago. There was mistakes made in the messaging. And we don't do that about hepatitis B. And you have a higher risk of getting hepatitis B than you do of HPV, if we're going to talk about it like that. But it seems like in the, in the hepatitis B movement, they did a better, uh, did better job of messaging than we have messaging about this. So Okay. We've made a lot of mistakes in talking to the public, and this has been one of them. It has absolutely nothing to do with having sex. It has to do with preventing cancers. <laughs> and I get so a lot of messages 
And I just wanted to read one from a gentleman in his 60s. Uh, He sent me a message over the weekend and said he was fully vaccinated for HPV um, and is in a relationship with somebody who has HPV. But he's deciding whether to try to, he's deciding whether to continue in this relationship. They really like each other. But a friend had mentioned, why would you get involved with somebody knowing they have a contagious disease? And so he's asking what the efficacy of the HPV vaccine in a mid-60s male is. That's a great question, actually. So the reason we're vaccinating kids before they become sexually active is, is kind of acts like a uh, protective rain jacket so that you're protected. So, of course, the older you are, the less that's realistic. So a 60-year-old man... We do not, first of all, let's be clear, there is no upper age limit on this vaccine. So this is a vaccine that protects people of all ages from cancer causing uh, strains of this uh, virus. So a 60-year-old man who goes into a dating relationship knowing his partner has HPV, I give that guy an A+, that he was proactive and decided to get that cancer prevention tool so that he wouldn't be impacted by his partner's HPV. And that's what we should be doing. This is a perfect Uh recipe for anybody going into a relationship with somebody who they know has HPV. It's to be vaccinated so that you can have a healthy relationship and be be protected from that virus. So So he has better than recipe. He has better than 60 to 70 percent efficacy on this vaccine. So it's. The, the man is already, the problem with the, the story is, is that he's already in his 60s. He's, uh-huh. not in the, he's not 10, he's not 20, he's not 30, he's not 40, he's not 50, he's in his 60s. So we can't promise, because this man has already had probably several sexual relationships. He's already gone below the belt. He's already had skin-to-skin contact. My guest is Teresa Norris. She's the founder and president of HPV Global Action. We are talking about HPV, human papillomavirus, and the vaccine. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Teresa. Great. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And sorry about my dog. Okay, so mm-hmm. <laughs> we <Okay>. are. Um, <laughs> so we're talking about the HPV vaccine, um, the efficacy of it, basically. So should this yep. gentleman worry that we were talking about? He's in his mid sixties. He's in a relationship with somebody who has yep. HPV. And can he count on that vaccine 100%? We don't know when he actually got that vaccine, what age. You said there's no upper age limit. And does he need to take Mm -hmm. any further precautions? Okay, so we've only been vaccinating males since 2017. So likelihood of him having it in his body at an early age as well. So we're always seeing that it helps prevent cancers, this HPV vaccine. Is it efficacious? Meaning, is it safe? Yes. Is it effective? Yes. We've given millions of doses of this vaccination across the globe for almost 20 years now. Anybody who had a problem with it needs to get over it. Seriously. We have this proof. We have the evidence. We can show that it's actually preventing cancers in countries that have been doing this vaccination. We are seeing a reduction in these cancers. There is little to no side effects. And at this point, this should not be a concern for anybody in any country across the entire the entire world about whether they should be getting vaccinated. Right. So of he's got age. Yeah. So he's, he's got great. Yeah. So he's he's protected. He doesn't need to do any any take any further precautions. 
you should always be using condoms, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, when we're with a partner, if, if I get my child of the age, before they've been in touch with any other human being, prepubescent, and I give them the vaccine, they're going into life protected. So anybody who's after those ages, of course, I can't guarantee it 100% because they may have been in contact with somebody who had that virus before they were vaccinated. Right. So the likelihood that this man has come into contact with somebody earlier than 60 that may have had an HPV, there is a risk. Yes. So is he 100% protected? No, he's not. He's 60. Because because of other experiences that he may have had, not necessarily with this particular partner. Yes. This vaccine works like a rain jacket. So the sooner you put that rain jacket on, the sooner you're protected. He waited 60 years to put it on. Of course, he's not going to be protected for what he did from zero to 60. And Mm -hmm. that applies to anybody. But listen, I think he may have already, he may have already had it and cleared the virus on his own. and the, the kicker with uh, with this virus, HPV, is, is that it could stay asleep in your body for up to 40 years before you're going to have symptoms. So he mm-hmm. risks to have ha- have symptoms from what he did back when he was 25 in college before he'll have a consequence from his 60-year-old relationship that he's having now. Right, It'll be right. I have another question. Yes. I have another question that's come in. Uh, can HPV be spread by skin-to-skin contact by something as innocent as cuddling on the beach while in swimwear? Let's be clear. You have to have skin-to-skin contact below the waistline. So when you're lying beside somebody on the sand on a beach in a bathing suit with all of your genitalia covered, do you have skin-to-skin contact? The answer is No. You have to be able to have skin-to-skin contact with somebody between the waist and the knees, front to back, where you touch, where you have access to skin-to-skin contact with their genitalia, and your genitalia is also showing. So you're not showing all those pieces at a beach. So no, you cannot get HPV from going pee on a toilet or for lying next to somebody on, on, a, on a towel or from kissing somebody with a mild kiss. But yes, when we use our hands or our mouths or our body parts to do anything below the waistline and above the knees, front to back, yes, you can come into contact with HPV. And unfortunately, yes, these things do lead to cancers. Mm-hmm. And some of the vaccines are, are two-shot deal or three-shot deal. Um, somebody's asked if anyone ever gets a third or fourth shot. No. So if you're under 14, it's two doses in Canada. Over 14, it's three doses over six months. So under 14, it's two doses over six months. Over 14, three doses, and there is no upper age limit. So people of any age, whether you've been married for five minutes or 25 years, whether you've had 15 partners or you've had two, uh, there's never a scenario where it's not a good idea to get it. It's, whether you, it's a really important thing for people to remember, no matter your age, your gender, or your relationship status, it's always a good idea to be vaccinated against these cancers and general awards. Teresa, thank you so much for joining the program tonight. We're up against the clock here. What's the website uh, again? So www.hpvglobalaction.org. You can go check out the vaccine programs, click on your province, and you'll get to see everything you need. And anybody who needs any further information can contact us. And it'll be our pleasure to give you any information you need about a human papillomavirus. You may have heard me say in the past that I 
one thing that just drives me crazy, annoys me to absolutely no end, is this misinformation, especially around health, that's delivered on social media platforms like Twitter and Instagram and even TikTok. Yes, TikTok. And it just drives me crazy. And oftentimes it's uh, non-medical people you know, thinking they can read a page from a book and pretend like they're a physician, even though they are a marketer and have never actually gone to school um, or had any training or ever laid a hand on a patient. Um, so I've never seen people in their clinical practice. And, you know, being in a clinical practice is really important because you learn about the clinical trends and you learn what works with patients and you learn about their concerns. And, and oftentimes these people on social media are just trying to uh, take advantage of vulnerable people, um, oftentimes even marginalized people, people who are desperate for a health solution, especially in our current state of affairs of our healthcare system where the weights are long, the pain can be high, uh, anxiety, depression can set in, and, and somebody comes up with a, a cure-all for everything from your chronic back pain to your anxiety to your urinary incontinence to your painful uh, sex to your sexless marriage, whatever it is, they have got a $59.99 um, dollar <laughs> uh, treatment for you that maybe they co-created or they made up or they threw a bunch of ingredients together or they call it natural. And natural doesn't mean natural. Natural just means not regulated. And so it just drives me crazy. And, and so I've been putting on Instagram some, some of the things that I've seen that appalled me. Um, if you want to follow me on Instagram, uh, feel free to head on over there and see some of these videos that, that I post. Um, and you know, so through this, I met somebody on Instagram who, you know, was in support of this same type of thing. And, and she said to me, you know, we have an evidence-based, a free evidence-based website called herstasis.com. And so I invited her to come on the show. She's a tech startup extraordinaire. Her name is Jennifer Thompson, and she parlayed her own health issues into this evidence-based website called herstasis.com, and she joins me on the line. Good evening, Jennifer. Hi, Maureen. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for joining the program tonight. So, I mean, this this work that you've done, this website is fantastic. I've had a chance to take a look at it. There's so much information about menopause and hormones and menopause symptoms and, and different therapies and different resources, and it's all evidence-based, as, um, as you told me. Um, which is great. And, it, and it's information, it's education, it empowers women to go to speak to their healthcare provider about the symptoms that they're having. It may make the doctor's visit a, a bit easier. It may help them to understand what's going on um, with them as they wait for a uh, visit to their doctor. Um, but you also talked to me a little bit about um, the importance of men speaking to other men about menopause. So tell me a little bit about that work. Well, we started out with, um, the company started out with very much exclusively women working on the problem. And um, I sort of thought, well, if we're going to fix this, it requires women to, to get in and do this because the current medical system run primarily by men is not, not doing it. And I met um, some people on a UNICEF trip that I did in Ghana in 2019 and the person that was in charge in northern Ghana of the girls' menstrual hygiene program was a man. And uh, I was really interested to see that 
But what it, how it works in the power structure there is that you needed men to talk to men and uh, to educate them about girls' hygiene, menstrual hygiene. So when I came back, I thought, you know, it's probably the same thing here. Men kind of need to hear it from each other. They don't want to hear a woman talking about menopause and the changes that are happening for women. They'd like to hear it from men so that they can speak a common language. So really, we set um, up a page on the site that's called For Men, and it talks about male, what men think of as their own menopause, but it also has a bunch of resources for partners and how you can go do some research yourself um, to, to look into more about what your partner is going through. And um, so, yeah, we've really started to try to include more male voices in the work that we're doing because we've realized it's really important. And, and I just want to, as a reminder, and I probably should have said this earlier, that menopause is a natural biological process transition that marks the end of a woman's reproductive years. It typically occurs the perimenopausal years, the 40s, um, uh, and, perimenop- uh, and menopause typically early 50s, depending on what research that you look at. And you know, when, you know, oftentimes women are in a relationship uh, or it's a time when if they have children, they're leaving the nest or, and women don't understand it themselves. And so it's, how can men understand menopause? I mean, it's, it's so important to provide these resources um, for men because it affects men when, when either person of a relationship in a relationship is having challenges in life, having difficulties, maybe brain fog, one of the um, symptoms or depression or anxiety or vaginal dryness, or, um, you know, uh, not feeling, you know, hot, uh, night, night sweats and hot flashes. And, you know, it might be impacting their work, which is another area where people need to be educated is in, um, the workplaces about about menopause because many women are reaching the pinnacle of their careers during this time. Um, they may have risen through the ranks and then all of a sudden, you know, symptoms occur and it may be impacting their work or their performance or their productivity. Um, so why? How how have you found the reception of um, men taking this on and, and helping out a little bit, <laughs> if you will? Well, I would say probably really at the very beginning of it. The people that we're working with in Uganda, frankly, are farther ahead than we are here in Canada. So I would actually take some tips from them. The male healthcare people travel with female healthcare people out into the villages. And the men take a group of men, the, the man that I met takes a group of men off one side and they talk about menopause and the symptoms of menopause. And the goal of that in that area is actually to keep partners together so in parts of central africa that i've traveled to once a woman is past reproductive the reproductive stage she's really not valued whatsoever she can she gets left quite often uh, by her husband for younger women and frankly the same exact same thing happens here in the west so it's no different um you know there's this understanding that women kind of lose their minds when they're in their 40s and their 50s and men shouldn't have to stick around or even think about understanding it because there's always some other woman out there i guess i don't know so i want you know really what we're trying to do here is give men some basic information but also to spur some empathy with them so here's all the things that the partner in your life is doing and also dealing with a long, slow change in her body that has 
many, many impacts, uh, potentially, as you've listed out. So just getting men on board to be empathic um, would be just so helpful so that women don't get blamed for, you know, so-called being crazy, right? We get that all the time. Exactly. Um, You know, it's, it, you know, menopause brings about, and I did certainly didn't name all of the menopausal symptoms that women can experience. um, And, and they can go to your website, herstasis.com to get that whole list. Um, But it can bring about various physical, emotional, psychological changes. And, you know, the thing is that I found in my clinical practice is that men don't understand um, because women aren't talking to them. Uh, to their partners, the, you know, the person that they're have been the most intimate with, and then the intimacy may end. And and you mentioned that in Uganda, um, marriages end and families are broken up because of a natural transition of life that is poorly understood. And, and we certainly have that here. I've certainly seen that in my clinical practice as well, where uh, sexual desire decreases, yet it's not discussed. And so how important is that education, um, about, uh, you know, for men, to men, by men? Mm-hmm. Well, I would say that the education almost needs to start with women. So women just do not even understand what's happening to them. Right? All of a sudden, they're getting way more moody than they used to be. Or they're getting angry. They never used to have these major fits of anger, for example. So the people in their lives don't know what's going on, and they don't know what's going on. So what's happening to me? And am I in menopause are two major questions that we find as we go through and look at Google Analytics and the, and the keyword searches. So if women don't even know what's happening to them, how can they possibly explain it to the men in their life? So it's, I think we, we're so far behind. We need to catch up as women, and then we can educate the men in our lives. Now, having said that, if worked out a really good verbal relationship with my husband around this after many years, where, for example, if I'm having a bit of a panic or an anxiety attack, I can literally look at him and say, wow, I feel like that thing's coming on. I'm not feeling great right now. I really need a bit of a break or I have to go and have a bath or go to bed early or something. So what used to be, oh, my God, I thought we were going to go and do this thing is now, hey, no problem. Take a night. Let's do something different and see how you feel tomorrow. So it's that's taken a lot of years, though, for us to get there. And part of my point of her stasis is trying to shortcut that, get people the education they need so that they can advocate for themselves as their healthcare practitioner, but also so that they like their body and they understand what's happening in their body. And they're not so scared. My guest is Jennifer Thompson. We are talking about men in menopause, how men can understand. She is the founder at herstasis.com. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Jennifer. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Now, oftentimes, uh, menopausal symptoms or perimenopausal symptoms will come at a time, uh, you know, even a stressful time in a relationship. Some couples may need to make decisions related to family planning or contraception during the perimenopausal phase. And when men understand the biological and hormonal changes occurring in their partners, then they can be active participants in these discussions um, or the decisions that they need to make as a couple. It also can lead to shifts in intimacy and sexual dynamics, and men just may not understand. So it's so important, um, you know, and you you outline this on herstasis.com, the tips for supporting women. So what are some of the ways that men can support women during the perimenopausal and menopausal years and their years? 
And there you is. Well, I think, um, I mean, I won't repeat what's on the site there because there's lots of good info, but I, I really think it comes down to kind of taking an active role, uh, both people. I mean, so we have a YouTube channel as well that has it, it is at Herstasis, and there's all kinds of stories on there, women telling their own perimenopause stories. So I think if men are kind of open to it, they're not embarrassed of it if they could proceed to without um, you know providing feelings of shame to the partner and really kind of getting to the bottom of it you know what's what's happening things seem like they're changing what you know this is kind of a time where we would expect to see some changes you know how are you feeling kind of checking in it is it is more touchy-feely stuff I do think um, and a lot of times women don't even necessarily notice, right? They might become really negative and really, I won't use the B word, but really not a positive person around the house. But she mm-hmm. doesn't know what's going on for her. So rather than fighting it back, it might be time for men to step back and then go, wow, really noticing a difference in your behavior. Let me go figure out what's going on. Like is a menopause. If, it's, if you're 35, and up it could be the beginnings of that mm-hmm. so i think and so, really teaching yourself what could be going on and then working it through with your partner to reduce the stigma and the shame if it, 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 i can't get like any more granular than that in terms of advice yeah and i think even what you recommend on the website is learn about the 35 plus symptoms of menopause that can you know change over a 12 year period for women and so yep. um you know even just understanding what they are, you know, a little bit going back to school and even just having this conversation um, because menopause does affect men. It doesn't just affect women, it affects men and families and jobs and, and everything. And, and the other thing, which is so hard for us to, for anyone to do is to just listen. And, and your website recommends that, which I love that just listening is sometimes the best thing that men t- can do at the, at the risk of sounding, um, <laughs> Uh, judgmental, um, I, I find in my life sometimes that men want to provide solutions. Sometimes we don't want a solution. Sometimes we just want somebody to listen and, and just to, you know, those feelings are real. Those feelings of frustration about, you know, brain fog or fatigue or um, low sexual desire. I mean, they are real. And so, you know, that's how we get the empathy is to understand what's going on because this can be a very frustrating time of life. And you may have a few symptoms in the first couple of years and then that may change. Um, And then it could lead to conflict when, when somebody is just frustrated or upset or, you know, you have to listen and, and may I add, be patient. Um, what are some of the other ways men can support uh, women? Well, I mean, I guess During I only menopause. Can, I can speak to my own experience here where I, um, you know, my depression got so bad that my husband had to carry me into the car and drive me to the doctor. And I was given a choice of whether I was going to go home when there's 24 hours supervision or whether I was going to the hospital. And so, I mean, my husband could see that I was going down. He could see that it wasn't, something was wrong, like badly, badly wrong. Uh And I just kept crying. I couldn't stop crying. And I think at first it was irritating for him uh, because neither one of us knew what was going on. 
But when I was told, really, essentially, you're suicidal, um, you're not leaving my office until we do something about this right now, there's a big wake-up call to us. I think we thought that, you know, it was just me being this or, you know, sort of a just, right? It's just this, it's just that. And it wasn't just anything. It was an extremely serious mental health issue. And so him kind of getting behind that and then he's kind of, making looking out for me and he went up and got the meds from the London drugs and just kind of got right behind me to try to help me get better that was probably the best that is the best possible thing he could have done instead of fight it or assume that I'm being weak or I'm trying to get attention or whatever else people could make up in their mind he just mm-hmm. bought right into it and went fine okay let's do this I get it and I'm here for you so just from my own personal experience if you can take that as an example and apply it across every one of the symptoms. Um, I think you're well ahead as a, as a, as a man or as a supportive partner. Mm-hmm. And you know, what I'm hearing is um, he walked alongside you uh, during a, what sounds like a, a horrific time um, yeah. during your, yeah, he was really supportive, but he didn't start out that way. He was frustrated with me to begin with. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he you know, it's not an accusation. It just literally was the case. So, it took our of whole course. family a while to get around to acknowledging that it was okay to be the way I am and mm-hmm. and to help me kind of get through it. And I feel much better now, by the way. I really, really do. And probably it's medication, but probably that phase has changed in my life. Right. So now I we... have joint pain. <laughs> We're going to be talking about binge drinking. Binge drinking refers to the consumption of a large amount of alcohol in a short period of time. It typically leads to a blood alcohol concentration of 0.08 grams per deciliter or higher. Binge drinking can have serious implications on your health. It can have social and legal consequences. It is more common among young adults and college students, but we also see this with adults as they grow up. You can see people maybe at parties who they start and they just can't stop. They're the last ones to leave the party. Their teeth are red from the overconsumption of red wine. Um, It's binge drinking and it increased during the pandemic. And joining me on the line to talk about this as well as mental fitness, because I think it's related, is Dr. Tomi Mitchell. She's a medical doctor, family physician as well, and she's also a productivity coach. And her website is wellnessstrategies.com. That's wellnessstrategies.com with three S's in the middle there. Good evening, Dr. Mitchell. Good evening, Maureen. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm well. Excellent, excellent. We're wrapping up the summer here, which is uh, (laughs) my favorite season coming to an end, or I hope not. I hope it continues on a little bit longer with the weather anyway, with warm weather, but we do need some rain. So I'm I'm hoping for that as well. Um, So this is a really important subject, I think, um, because I think whether it's stress or trauma or um, financial problems. And, you know, all of that goes along with, um, people who've been evacuated from their homes, who are living under the threat of what the wildfires, um, in addition to during the pandemic, this, this rose, um, binge drinking and post pandemic, it seems to have increased as well. Uh, why is it that people turn to the bottle, um, and other substances like marijuana and we're, we're finding it 
has reached record highs in middle-aged adults, according to this uh, recent survey. Why is it that people turn to these substances to deal with life, basically? Because it's readily available and it's becoming more and more socially acceptable, especially with marijuana since it was, you know, legalized not that long ago. So it's become a social norm and it has this way of temporarily numbing one from, quote unquote, the pain. Uh, and it actually so. makes it worse. I mean, initially, I think oh, people yeah. feel a bit, a bit better. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. I think. Uh, they feel worse, but they can also be doing this as a result of unresolved trauma or adverse childhood events as well. Yeah. Um, a recent survey from University of Michigan, monitoring the future, uh, the future panel, um, they actually found that marijuana use was reported by around 44% of adults under the age 30, and that's up 28% from a decade ago. That's just unbelievable. Well, yes, and it's that decade-ish ago, you know, marijuana was legalized. Well, here in Canada and also in the U.S., it's becoming more and more normalized into normal social context conversation. So that's part of the problem. And and this binge aspect of it, um, yeah. you know, we had this during the pandemic as well. So why did why do you think that people started increasing the use of these substances, alcohol and marijuana, during the pandemic? Well, I think the pandemic exposed cracks individuals had in their own life, personal, financial, mental, et cetera, et cetera. And um, let's face it, out of the very few businesses opened or allowed to be open were the essential ones, and liquor stores were deemed essential. And mm-hmm. people um, became, instead of drinking socially with, you know, friends and having a meal with it, et cetera, et cetera, it was, they were drinking in their homes. Mm-hmm. And we know that when people do that, they often drink more. Right. And, you know, people of advancing age, they have a tendency to increase their alcohol consumption as they age. Correct. And oftentimes people are lonely as a result, or they're yeah. just staying in their homes and they're drinking and nobody's seeing them and, and they build up a tolerance for it. And, um, but we're also seeing, um, a whole new, <laughs> um, uh, anyway, perspective about people who smoked marijuana as a teenager and young adult who are now becoming parents and grandparents. And they're almost as likely to smoke marijuana as the kids. Exactly. Like it's, we used to think marijuana was this drug people, young kids smoke behind the high school building, whatever, but you're right. We're seeing it in older ages. And again, I think that's due to changes in society, the accessibility, and also social stressors and other things that are contributing to people making these choices, which are not good for their health. No, they're certainly not, but it, but they're easy. You, you mentioned they're accessible um, yeah. and they're easy to get their hands on. And, you know, middle-aged adults also use hallucinogen, hallucinogens like LSD and MDMA and psilocybin has becoming, um, is becoming more and more popular these days. And that was also according to this survey that was done at the University of Michigan. Um, it, it's just incredible that people are you know, raising kids and using substances. It's, I have to say, I'm always like amazed when I, or saddened, I should say, when I see a new mom with a baby and a glass of wine 
in oh, her hand. Exactly. And, you know, if you look at social media, which I know we're both on, you see it's glorified, you know, like mommy wine day and mommy, like it's just, it's our society. And it's really unfortunate that people don't realize that these drugs, you think these substances are drugs and harmful, right? But it's uh-huh. being consumed at record levels. And, you know, from the physician perspective, I remember a few years ago, I don't remember how many years ago now, they had talked about how, you know, moderate alcohol consumption is good for you. And I remember hearing that and almost hitting my head against the wall. I'm like, really? And now it's like we're taking it back. So it's a whole, it's a reckoning. I think people need to realize, not I think, people need to recognize that these medications, these drugs are not innocent. They're mm-hmm. harmful. No, it might please you to know that a record 39% of Americans say that moderate drinking, which is defined as one to two drinks a day, is bad for health. And that's according to a recent Gallup poll. And that's up 11% since 2018. So somebody's getting through somewhere. Um, but, you know, it's the people reaching for the bottle, they don't also realize the impact on their brain, their cardiovascular yeah. health, kidney function. Um, there are so many also increased risk of falls and fractures, especially as people age, um, and, you know, become a bit tipsy and, and may actually tip over, (laughs) um, and, and cause uh, anything from a, you know, a a strain or sprain to a fracture to a spinal cord injury. I had a patient who slipped in their bathroom. They weren't consuming alcohol, but, um, in the middle of the night, you get up to the bathroom and you've got a head, you know, you're not feeling well, you have a headache, you're, you know, not sharp and you're at risk of falling, which is, you know, is a big deal and is life altering when your mobility is impacted that way. hundred percent. And we know with an elderly, a, a fractured hip could lead to death. Like we've seen it. I'm sure I know you've seen it in your career as well. Absolutely. And anyone who's ever had cancer, if he's recovering from cancer, if no one ever told you, please run away from alcohol. Alcohol is like adding kerosene to a burning flame. It increases your risk of recurring recurrence of that cancer. It is bad news. Um, one in eight women have breast cancer in Canada. You should be staying away from alcohol. It is, it is bad news, period. My guest is Dr. Tomi Mitchell. She's a medical doctor and also deals with uh, productivity, mental health. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Dr. Mitchell. I really appreciate it. Excellent. So we've, we've seen perhaps we weren't as mentally fit during uh, the pandemic time, and maybe we were at home, we weren't even fully getting dressed. <laughs> we were yeah. just halfway dressing and <laughs> rolling out of bed. I have to say I'm guilty of this. Roll out of bed, throw on a sweater, a blazer, <laughs> and sit in front of a Zoom call. Uh, maybe wash the face. I, I, I have to say, I have to brush my teeth even before I go on a Zoom call. <laughs> Anyhow, um, I digress. But during that time, it was tremendously stressful for a lot of people. And I'm not going to, I don't want to be discounting or be seen to discount that time, it was tremendously uh, stressful. Uh, my work decreased um, significantly. Patients couldn't come into the office. Many people lost their jobs. A lot of people were working from home where we were teaching our kids and you know trying to find places for everybody to set up in the home to do their work. And um, a terribly stressful time. And, and a lot of people may have turned to alcohol or other substances 
maybe they were found out. Maybe you didn't know that your parents were smoking pot, but they were trying to reduce the anxiety. But a better way is something known as mental fitness. So tell me a little bit about mental fitness. I know it's a, a lot of the work that you do. Yeah, so mental fitness really refers to the you want someone's psychological and emotional well-being, their, your resilience and ability to cope with life's challenges. So think of your brain as a muscle, and we can actually train our brain to become more of a friend than our enemy, right? Because so many times we are our own weakest link. So we all know, well, most people know about physical fitness, and that's really important. Um, as is mental fitness, that ability to cultivate the strong mind. You know, there are people who seem so happy-go-lucky, nothing, quote-unquote, seems to get them down. It doesn't mean that nothing gets them down, but they're able to pause, recognize those emotions instead of just stuffing them under the rug, acknowledge it, but then also redirect, reframe, find something good, be more solution-oriented instead of focusing on the problem. So that's mental fitness in a nutshell. And so it's really facing the problems head on, conquering them, having some strategies to deal with what life throws your way. And life is going to throw exactly. something everybody's way, correct? 100%. And acknowledging that life, there's uncomfortable parts of life, and that's normal. We don't need to run away from discomfort, right? Exactly. So that's really important. And, and how important is self-confidence and high character and the willingness to admit when you're wrong? How, how does that impact mental fitness? From, I find individuals who have great self-awareness, being able to look inside one and, like you said, admit when one's wrong, typically have higher, stronger mental fitness and even often physical fitness because they often go hand in hand. Um, that introspection that ability to admit one's wrong, that ability to look for the good, the ability to not let, to carry on and just carry those unnecessary weight. So many people internalize concerns of talking about them and addressing them. They pretend, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine. But it comes out. It manifests in other ways of their life. So this emotional strength, resiliency, looking at the gift in the midst of the challenges, and that really made a huge impact on those who weathered the pandemic, you know, pretty optimal versus uh -huh. those who struggled with it significantly. Exactly. Um, and it's, you know, I, I find that whatever problems life has thrown my way, and, and believe me, I've had my share, um, you know, the dealing with them, managing them, although the, some were just so incredibly challenging, um, yes. but you gain a certain strength afterward that you think, you know, I can handle, if I got through that, I can handle anything. Um, I completely it, agree. Yeah. Is that, you know, is that just something I felt or do, do patients in your clinical practice talk about that at all? Yes, they definitely do. And that's something that I've also been through as well. Like you might look at someone like, oh, they have everything together. No, that does not mean everything is perfect, but the ability to see through, the ability to find solutions with clear laser focus is so important, right? So many people mm -hmm. just sit and commiserate and not really know what to do next. Others, okay, challenge, opportunity. What can I learn? How can I make myself better prepared in the event that this happens again, right? Because it's mm -hmm. life. Life mm -hmm. happens. And, and a lot of people play the victim. And I always oh, think, yeah. you know, I mean, if, if people, especially patients, you know, I, I always start out with, you know, I'm not that easy to work with. <laughs> 
listen, mm -hmm. I'm tough, um, but you can't blame anybody either. So there's, and, and it takes people a long time to get over the fact of like, she said this and she did that and she did that and he did this and he did that, or they did this and they did that. And it's like, no, what did you do to contribute to the issue? You know, playing the victim, you know, why, why is that so detrimental to somebody's mental fitness? Because it takes the locus of control away from them. So they feel that they cannot make a change impact, a positive impact in the situation because they're giving their power to somebody else. When uh -huh. we as the individual have the power to change our response, we don't have to change the other person. We're not saying you can change them, but you can change your response and then move yourself from a situation and learn the skills necessary to do better. And as right. far as the blame, we it might be that one person has 99% of the blame, so be it. But what is that 1%? What could have we done differently, right? Mm -hmm. So oh, that's really important. Absolutely. And it's, you know, you got to be tough. When the times get tough, you know, the tough get going. You just yeah. have to, um, you know, and also take care of yourself. You mentioned good physical um, health as well. And, and, you know, it's important to get that sleep, eat healthy, good nutrition, exercise, all that. So you can deal with, and, and how important is mindfulness and meditation? Can that improve one's ability to stay present and manage the stress? 100%. Mindfulness is actually one of the few things that has been shown to decrease the negative impact of stress on the human brain. Cause we know that parts of the brain shrink with due to stress. So mindfulness is very important. And with that mindfulness, continuous learning. I think that's a piece that most people forget after leaving, you know, school. They stop learning. But mm -hmm. you need to exercise that brain so that you're learning, applying new, current, um, tried and tested, proven techniques. So mindfulness, exactly. exercise that brain. Read a book. Listen to an audio book. Look at the personal development section. It's, there are so many amazing treasure troves books out there that you can learn and listen to. Instead Absolutely. of listening to negativity. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.